This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 224. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide to realms of the strange and the fantastic. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you the latest about my life and my writing. So let's get right to it, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part four of my comedic portal fantasy, The Dark Lord Steve. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 221 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Steve emerged from the rubble of Galvero's Tower to find that both the Sorcerer and the Tome of Alzarius had been incinerated. Steve is now stuck in the world of the Reach. He soon encountered one of the castle maids, who was, understandably, terrified, and began screaming uncontrollably at the sight of the near-naked demon in the charred remains of Galvero's summoning tower. Annoyed, Steve trapped the maid in a soundproof plexiglass tube, which very nearly led to her suffocating from the lack of oxygen. Steve was horrified that he had almost killed another person with his carelessness, and this one an innocent bystander. He conjured a bed for her, and looked after her until she was recovered. The maid was puzzled by the fact that a demon had shown remorse and shame for his actions. That's not something she had ever heard of happening before. Warily, she began to talk to Steve. The maid wouldn't tell Steve her name, because names give demons power over people, so Steve gave her the nickname Daisy. As they talked, Steve discovered that Galvero's death created a new problem for the castle's inhabitants. Once Galvero's overlord learns of his death, he will give the fiefdom to another lord, one who will arrive with his own followers, whom he will reward with the best positions on the estate. Daisy and her fellow villagers will have to make do with whatever is left. They aren't slaves, but they have very few options, and this land is the only home they have ever known. Steve decided that since he created this mess, he will have to be the one to fix it. Conjuring a pencil and a pad of paper, he fell into step beside Daisy and started taking notes. The Dark Lord Steve Written in Red by Chris Lester Part 4 Four weeks passed before the overlord named a new baron for Galvero's estate. Steve knew this had happened when he woke up one morning and the castle would no longer change according to his commands. It wasn't Galvero's castle now, so knowing his name wouldn't work anymore. But Steve had known that time was coming, and he and Daisy had prepared. They'd been talking to the peasants and servants, 
sharing ideas and making allies. Many of the townsfolk were understandably leery about trusting a demon, but they had all been living there long enough to know that the town owed its prosperity to beings like Steve. Since they were also leery of their land being given to a new baron, that was enough for them to give Steve and Daisy a hearing at least. Plans were drafted, preparations were made, and then there was nothing to do but wait for the new baron to show himself. Another six weeks passed, and the barley fields grew ripe and ready. Steve conjured up a fully modern combine harvester, complete with instruction manuals, and had the whole crop gathered in record time. The farmers watched his steel demon with a mixture of terror and delight, and they rejoiced as they bagged up the grain and carted it into town. Even Galvero had never done anything so wondrous. The beer flowed freely that night, and many a glass was raised in Steve's honor. The next morning, the harvester vanished, as mysteriously as it had arrived. Two days later, the new baron rolled into town, accompanied by a dozen knights, fifty footmen, and two dozen wagons full of supplies and attendants. Galvero's people lined the streets, watching the newcomers with blank expressions, but they bowed and curtsied appropriately and did as they were told. The horses were ushered off to the stables, the soldiers to their barracks, a building Steve had raised to his own specifications before the new lord had even been named, and the lord and his family to their chambers. Steve watched all of this disguised as a simple footman, aided by a few strategically placed cameras and wiretaps he had conjured and installed around the castle. Galvero's people prepared a feast to welcome their new master. Coolly, joylessly, but with careful attention to detail and every formal courtesy, so none of them could be accused of disrespect. The new lord and his minions gorged themselves on the excellent food and drink, and reveled until late into the night. At the back of the great hall was a large grandfather clock. It was another anachronism, but one that looked more like the work of a clever inventor than demonic conjuring. Throughout the evening, the revelers would stop and listen, fascinated, each time it chimed out the hours. When the clock struck midnight, Steve and his allies made their move. The doors to the great hall burst open, and Steve strode through in a body he had shaped for the occasion. He was ten feet tall, with a tough and scaly hide of a dark cherry red, horns like a great bull, eyes that glowed with yellow flame. He held a pitchfork in his hands, its tines black, gleaming, and wreathed in flames. Baron! Steve bellowed, in a voice that was much deeper and louder than what he could normally manage. Thou hast invaded my domain. I have come to reckon with thee. He hoped it came out authentically archaic enough. He still had no idea what this high Flavinian actually sounded like. The Baron's eyes widened to roughly the size of dinner plates. "'Guards!' he cried, his voice at least an octave higher than usual. "'Stop it! Stop it! Kill it!' The two guards nearest to the door stumbled to their feet, still drunk, and charged at Steve with spears at the ready. Steve was glad he had thought to give himself natural armor. The spearheads snapped off uselessly with the first attack. 
The guards stared stupidly at the broken weapons in their hands. Then, more wisely, they dropped them and ran for it. The other guards, who were still lucid, did the same. Seize them! Steve commanded, and behind him an advancing crowd of pissed-off townskeepers quickly did so, wrestling the terrified soldiers to the ground. Dramatically, Steve stuck out his arm and pointed his flaming pitchfork at the Baron. The man let out a yelp, then scrambled to his feet and ran for the exit at the back of the hall. He had a head start on everyone else. If he were both quick and lucky, he might reach the emergency exit to the stables, or rally the rest of the guards in the barracks to aid him. Which was why Steve's allies had barred the rear door, and sealed the barracks and stables with state-of-the-art padlocks that were unlike anything Galvero's people had seen before. The Baron pounded on the door, shrieking for help, while Steve and the townspeople closed in. The Baron's servants and hangers-on made no move to help him. Most remained frozen in their seats, while a few cowered under the tables, or started edging discreetly toward the front doors. By the time Steve reached the Baron, he was crumpled against the door and weeping uncontrollably. He had also soiled himself, and the smells of piss and shit clung to his robes like a miasma of terror. Steve picked the man up by the scruff and held him close, looking him in the face with his ferocious, burning yellow eyes. With his other hand, he held the pitchfork near the side of the man's head, making him flinch away from the flames. This castle is mine, Steve growled. The town is mine. The fields are mine. I claim them by right of conquest. Understand? The Baron quivered and wept and said nothing. Steve shook him a little. Do you understand? Steve said, loud enough that it echoed off the walls around him. Yes, the Baron wailed. Yes, it's yours, it's yours, please don't kill me. Steve grunted noncommittally. He extinguished the flames on the pitchfork, then speared it through the back of the man's clothes and hoisted him aloft, like the bundle at the end of a hobo's stick. He slung the pitchfork over his shoulder, the humiliated baron dangling behind him, and carried the man all the way out of town. The locals escorted the baron's coterie behind him at spear point. As they approached the city gates, Steve gestured with his free hand. Immediately, the portcullis drew up and the gates swung open. He bared his teeth in a broad, satisfied grin. As the Baron had said, the castle was his now. Steve took the Baron outside and made the pitchfork vanish, which dropped the man unceremoniously in the middle of the road. Go home, he ordered. Don't come back, or next time I won't be so nice about it. The Baron scrambled to his feet, quickly backed away a few steps, then turned and ran into the night. Steve turned to the rest of the Baron's terrified entourage. You can go with him, or not. It's up to you. But if you stay here, you do what I say. He concentrated on his own body, and shrank himself back down into a human form. Six and a half feet tall, dark-haired, powerfully muscled, tanned and handsome, a Conan the Barbarian version of himself. 
He conjured on a black tunic and leggings, boots, and a wide leather belt as well. Walking around naked was fine as a demon, but as a person, it didn't really give the same impression. Lastly, he imagined a simple silver crown and placed it on his head. You can have the rest of the night to think it over, he said. If you're going to leave, be gone by sunrise. Come find me in the Great Hall if you've got any questions. The newcomers exchanged wide-eyed looks with one another, but none of them said anything. After a moment, one of the townspeople shouted, Hail Lord Steve! All around them, the other locals took up the call. Hail Lord Steve! Hail Lord Steve! Steve grinned and raised his fist in the air. Cheers and applause erupted from the crowd. Even some of the Baron's people joined in, though Steve thought their wide-eyed smiles looked a bit strained. Basking in the praise of the town he had conquered, Steve made his way back up the road to his fortress. That night, Steve took the throne to the general cheers and acclamation of the townsfolk. He also named Daisy as his official lieutenant. Galvero hadn't had any advisors to speak of, so there was no one of higher rank to grumble about this. Daisy had seemed to be generally well thought of by the castle staff anyway, and whatever lingering doubts they might have had were dispelled when Steve's conquest went off successfully. There was a lady's bedroom next door to the baron's quarters. It had belonged to the old baron's wife, but since Galvero had not been married, it had gone unused for the last ten years. Steve bequeathed it to Daisy, whose eyes went wide when she saw the room. What will I do with so much space? she asked wonderingly, looking at the high ceilings, the deep closets, the private bathtub made of fine ceramic. I guess we'll have to make you some new clothes, Steve said, grinning. You're my second in command now. I can't have you dressing like a maid. Daisy smiled her bright, brilliant smile again. It made Steve feel good. I would dearly love some new clothes, she confided. Steve went over to the lady's bed, which sat beside a curtained window. The frame was finely made, but narrow, even narrower than his old twin bed back home. The mattress was stuffed with old straw, and it smelled bad. Ugh. Hey, Daisy, will you give this bed back to me for a minute? I want to fix it for you. Daisy's expression was puzzled for a moment, but then cleared. Oh, uh, of course, my lord Steve. My bed is yours. Her cheeks flushed crimson as she seemed to realize what that had sounded like. I mean, I give you this bed, my lord. Steve was blushing, too. He cleared his throat and turned away from her, choosing to stare very intently at the bed. Right, he said. Um, let's see here. He closed his mind and felt the energy around the bed, that sense of unseen potential that was just waiting to be reshaped. He extended his hand over the bed and imagined it changing at his command. The process was not a simple flash this time. The whole bed began to glow, and then it began to change. The mattress rippled and reformed, as he imagined the straw being replaced by one of those modern hybrid mattresses with the memory foam on top. 
he pictured soft cotton sheets, a knitted blanket, and a fluffy duvet, and in seconds all of these appeared as well. Lastly, he conjured a couple of pillows, which fell out of the empty air and landed at the head of the bed. See what you think of that, he said. Daisy came forward and lay down on the bed. Her eyes grew wide again as she sank into the memory foam. She turned over on her side and pressed her hand experimentally into the surface, watching with open fascination as the foam slowly returned to its shape. She giggled. This is wondrous, she said. But then she looked up at him and hesitated. Uh. Steve gestured permissively. You want me to change something else? No problem, just name it. I... Daisy looked down at the bed, her cheeks turning scarlet again. Well, this room is so large, she said, fidgeting nervously with her hands. I thought maybe... Perhaps the bed could be larger? Steve's mouth fell open. Oh. He could feel his own blush creeping back up again. Yeah, for sure. Uh, here, get behind me for a sec. She quickly did so, and he extended his hand again. In a flash, the bed expanded to king size, the pillows multiplying like dividing cells to take up the additional space. Daisy let out a shriek of surprised delight, then leapt back onto the bed. She spread out her arms and legs and waved them around, like a kid making a snow angel. Steve climbed onto the bed next to her, grinning. Big enough for you? Oh, it's perfect! She clambered over and threw her arms around him, squeezing him tightly. Thank you, Lord Steve. I've never had anything so fine and lovely. As if on impulse, she reached up and kissed his cheek. The action seemed to take both of them by surprise. Steve froze, and Daisy quickly sat back on her heels, her freckled cheeks turning crimson. I... I should not have done that, my lord. I beg your forgiveness. Steve blinked. Uh, it's okay, he said after a moment. I don't mind. Really. Daisy looked down at the bed, ran her fingers over the duvet. I've never had a man in my chambers before. My my father said I was too homely to marry off, so he sent me to work in the Baron's castle instead. Steve stared. God, your dad sounds like an asshole. Daisy covered her mouth at this, a nervous giggle coming out unbidden. Oh, my lord! Again, Steve wondered how literally his English was being translated. Probably pretty literally, he guessed. Sorry, that was rude. But he shouldn't have called you ugly. You're not ugly. Daisy lowered her hand again. Her face had an expression he couldn't quite decipher. You don't think I'm homely, my lord? No, Steve said, forcefully. You've got pretty eyes, and a great smile, and your freckles are adorable, and your ears are cute, and, um... He looked up and down Daisy's body, searching for other things to compliment. She wasn't beautiful, and her chest was flat, and her hips were narrow, but there wasn't anything wrong with her. 
he abruptly became aware that he was sizing up Daisy just like the bed, labeling pluses and minuses, thinking of improvements he could make, like she was an object instead of a person. He felt a sudden chill. God, what would I have done if I could change her like I changed the bed? Maybe I'm the asshole. Look, he said more quietly, you're a really nice person. You helped me out when you didn't have to, and now you're going to help me make this place better for everybody. He reached out and gently touched her cheek. And I think that's beautiful. She smiled shyly and bowed her head. Thank you, my lord. You are very kind. Steve got to his feet. The bed is yours now. I'll uh, let you get settled in. Let's meet tomorrow morning and start talking about what we do next, yeah? She looked back up at him, and her bright blue eyes had gotten some of their sparkle back. I'm looking forward to it, my lord. Steve, Steve corrected her. He paused, then added, Stephen Charles Lipinski. That's my name. My full name. Daisy's eyes went wide again. You... you give me your true name? But... but that makes you... Vulnerable. Yeah, I know. Steve leaned against the doorframe, looked down at his feet. Look, I don't belong in this world. Once we get things sorted out here, once you're safe and we know nobody's going to mess with you, I need to figure out how to get home. But until then, I've got a lot of power here. Probably more power than anybody should have. And... And if you guys call people like me demons, I'm guessing that probably means we haven't always used that power for good. Daisy hesitated a moment, but then she just shook her head. Right, Steve said. He took a deep breath, in and out. If I ever start to go bad, if I use my power in ways I shouldn't, I want you to tell me. And if I don't listen, I want you to stop me. We'll figure out the magic you need to do it. Galvero can't be the only one who knew that stuff. He met her eyes. I trust you, Daisy. Don't let me be the bad guy. All right? Slowly, Daisy nodded. As you wish, Steve. As much as they might have wished otherwise, that was not the end of their troubles with the Baron. A few months later, the man sent his knights at the head of a modest army, mustered to retake the territory Steve had captured. But the land itself belonged to Steve now, and it obeyed his wishes with a wave of his hand. Steve buried the attackers waist-deep in quicksand, turned it to stone around them, and left the army to cool their heels overnight. The next day, his followers relieved the soldiers of their weapons and took the knights as prisoners of war. Steve released the conscripts and sent them home to their master. Some of them chose to stay, swearing fealty to Lord Steve instead, and he welcomed them into his growing kingdom. He held the knights for the next six months, until the baron's overlord sent an envoy to treat for their release. Apparently the overlord had gotten himself into a war on his eastern border, far from Steve's land, and had urgent need of more experienced commanders. 
Steve refused to swear fealty to the overlord. That sounded too much like giving him ownership of the land and the castle, which would have meant Steve lost his power to change things. Instead, he and Daisy did some heavy research into diplomacy and international relations, and eventually hammered out a non-aggression pact that the overlord was willing to sign. The baron was furious at this, and sent a messenger to Steve, who loudly threatened revenge on him and all his people. Steve received the messenger, listened to him rant, and let him return home unmolested. He sent along a copy of the non-aggression treaty, in which he had passive-aggressively underlined one of its provisions. Any subject who broke the treaty would be considered the lawful property of the opposing side. If the Baron tried to invade again, Steve would literally own his ass. They had no more trouble with the Baron after that. And that's the end of part four. Come back next time, when Steve starts looking for a way back to Oakland, but finds that the Reach is increasing its hold on him, too. Hey there, folks, this is Chris, coming to you as usual, unscripted. Greetings from the second, well, the end of the second week of coronavirus lockdown. (sighs) It's a very strange time to be alive. I'm considered to be an essential worker because we're part of the process of drugs being tested to make sure that they are safe and ready for human use. That process does not stop in the middle of a pandemic. You'd think that we would be working on testing treatments for this thing or, you know, working on the the early stages of the vaccines or something. But so far, it's just business as usual, except that most of us are working from home. So, Those of us who come into the lab have a lot easier time getting parking. I'm going to the lab about three times a week and doing as much testing as I can get done in that time, and then the rest of the week dealing with paperwork and answering emails and putting together reports and that sort of thing. You'd think that with us not having anywhere to go or anything to do, except taking the dogs for walks, you'd think I'd have more time to write. You'd think at least that I'd have time to do some of the reading I've been meaning to catch up on. I've got three or four novels downloaded to my phone that are in the um, the FF romance genre that I want to be writing, the Honor and Natasha books that I've been thinking about and talking about on this show, I'm really feeling like that's the next thing that I need to write because the stuff with with Kate and the the gang war and, you know, the rise of ancient evils and all of that, it just feels too dark and too depressing right now. I want to write something light and life-affirming and diversionary. And I feel like the uh, the honor books would be good for that. But I still haven't written anything. 
I haven't even done the the reading that I wanted to do for research. Every time I sit down for lunch or for a moment at home when I'm not we're not doing stuff together and I I tell myself that I'm going to going to start this process and do some research and read some books. Easiest thing in the world, right? I'm just drawn back over and over again to social media posts about coronavirus and websites about the coronavirus and newspaper columns about the coronavirus. And I keep going back to those exponential graphs over and over again and looking at the rising numbers and noting each new record, each new threshold with this macabre sort of fascination. I am not sure even why I keep doing it. It's not like I'm deriving any pleasure from it. It's not like it's giving me any sense of control over the situation. I know on some level that this is grief, that this is processing the enormous tragedy that we're all living through. But it doesn't feel like grieving. It doesn't feel like anything. Just numb. Just like staring at a train crash in slow motion. I don't know what it's going to take to pull me out of this. Maybe talking about it here will help. Maybe putting this into words gives me some measure of power over it. I don't know. I do know that nothing that I've done thus far has been in any way productive or fruitful on this front. <sighs> Let's see, apart from apart from the pandemic, I've been going to work, I've been cooking, I've been cleaning my new house. I've been taking the dogs on long walks with Mel every day. We have a nice quiet neighborhood that's good for good for long walks where you're not going to run into too many other people. The weather's been warmer, so it has been easier to go on those longer excursions. We've been getting bookshelves set up in our house and unpacking some of our books. You probably noticed that the acoustics of this room have changed. Uh, that's because, you know, some of the the books have been unpacked, and so the boxes are gone, and so things that were filling up corners are not filling up corners anymore, so you're getting some sound reflections that you didn't get last week. Which means that at some point here, I'm going to have to go to the hardware store and get stuff to build more acoustic panels. Obviously not high on my priority list right now, particularly because I would also have to go to the fabric store to get burlap to cover said acoustic panels, and I don't really want to be in a fabric store right now. Fabric is really good at picking up and holding viruses, and everybody's been touching those same bolts of cloth. It's just not a good time to walk into a store like that. It's not really a good time to walk into a store of any kind 
we received an emergency alert yesterday telling us the community spread is happening here. Don't go out of your house unless you absolutely have to. Of course, I still have to go to work because, thank God, my job is essential. But we did have our first laboratory placed in quarantine because one of the people who worked there had tested positive for COVID this week. He'd been out of work on quarantine for a week before the results came back. But, you know, who's to say how many other people in the lab picked it up in the time that he was here and have been transmitting it invisibly throughout the rest of the buildings? We have cleaning staff, but there's only so much you can do. So I have to keep going into work because, you know, for the time being, I'm healthy. I have no signs of, of having been exposed to the disease. And, you know, the work needs to be done. Drugs are still moving through the pipeline, even with all this. And we don't have any kind of national response that's directing us to do something different. But it's it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary leaving the house, going even just going to work. Even if I'm not talking to other people, even if I'm not fraternizing, like those are door handles and surfaces that have been touched by, you know, a couple thousand other people. And yet at the same time, it feels like going to work is a relief because it's the only thing about all this that feels normal. You know, I can go there and do my testing and for a few hours forget about this whole thing that's hanging over us. And at least when I'm at work, I have personal protective equipment. I have lab coats and gloves and goggles to keep the stuff that I'm touching off of me. So I'm somewhat more protected. I'm certainly more protected than the, the folks who are stocking the shelves at the grocery stores. We have excellent air filtration systems. Our whole microbiology suite is on a separate air circuit from everything else, mostly for the safety of the people outside the micro sweep. And now it, you know, it's serving as a added barrier to protect us. So when I'm in that lab, instead of surfaces that are being touched by hundreds of people, I'm, you know, dealing with surfaces that have been touched by maybe a dozen people. So that's good. I don't know. It feels like feels like life is on pause and starting anything new just feels overwhelming but we've got to keep moving right we've got to keep doing the things that make us alive that make us feel human and for me part of that is telling stories so here i am right now i'm telling you guys a story it's not the kind of story that i want to be telling but it's something. So wherever you guys are, I hope that you are staying safe, that you're staying healthy, that you're limiting your contact with other human beings. I hope that wherever you are, the, the hospitals are able to get what they need, that people are getting the care that they need. I hope that somehow our shared sense of humanity is going to inspire us to pull together and 
get each other through this instead of all retreating to our own corners. I hope that we are going to find a way to use this experience to change our society in the ways that it needs to change in order to become better and kinder and more humane. I don't know what it's going to cost for us to get there, but I suspect it's going to be high. So in the meantime, take care of each other, look out for each other, do what you can to help, and we'll find our way through this somehow. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to these stories. I hope that they are bringing you some joy and some laughter and some relief. And uh, for the ones who you are able to hold close right now, hold them close. For the ones who you can't hold for their own safety or yours, hold them in your hearts. And as much as we can in this darkness, keep it on the bright side. I'll talk to you soon. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.